welcome to Community Alliance Church. This is a weekend where a lot of people visit from so many walks of life. We're honored to have you. I'm Denny Kreisig, lead pastor here, and we're thrilled that you're here this morning. A lot of people come in on this particular weekend to visit. Obviously, a lot of people go away this weekend to visit, as you see some of the holes in this particular service. So I want to welcome Todd Wogans. This morning, Todd's been on our prayer list for a long time, and he's here this morning. So I'm glad to have my friend Todd here. There's a lot of information in your bulletin. I want you to make sure you read it very, very, very carefully. We could really uh, use your help in a lot of areas. I want to clarify something I said last week about starting point. I talked to you about being able to help you walk through, being able to understand where certain parts are in the Bible. One of the basic premises of starting point is to explain what Christianity is all about, to answer some of the basic questions about faith. And all of those begin, a lot of inserts over the last few weeks about them beginning in the next couple of weeks, September the 9th is when a lot of them take off. Could really use some uh, help in our children's ministries. That's what this insert is in there. It's been there for three weeks. Had one person help out. Got to believe there is somebody in the audience not involved anywhere else. We don't want you to duplicate or triplicate anything you're already doing, but somebody who's not involved that would love to help us in that particular area. Community groups, a great, great way to understand small groups in a limited context so that you can find out, is it a good fit? Where do you fit? What do you like in that? And those sign-ups are out there, and they also start pretty quick. So please read all of that very, very carefully so you don't miss out on a thing. I want to congratulate all of our summer reading program participants. That flyer is in there. And if you see one of those kids, encourage them to continue to read and continue to grow in that aspect and enjoy it and love it. And uh, if you see one of the parents, also encourage them because I know they're the ones that really are encouraging their children in that process. You have your sermon notes in your bulletin this morning. I believe it's this color, so take that out so that you can follow along with me. It's Labor Day weekend, weekend filled for a lot of people with travel, picnic, and barbecues. For most, it marks the end of summer vacation and kids returning to school. How many of you were thrilled to send your children back to school this week? I know I talked to some moms who were just counting the moments, not the days, but the moments, and others who shed an enormous amount of tears when their kids go off. Sometimes the kids are running on the bus and can't wait to get there. Other times they're tugging onto your pants because they don't want to go. One of the most difficult days of my life when I took my daughter, the second daughter, who after the first one went off to school, who loved it, the second one was ready to go to school and didn't want to because during that interim period, she spent that year and a half visiting with her dad. It was in a small church. We visited older folks, loved to have my daughter come, and we visited nonstop. So I'm taking her to school. I drop her off. She's crying. I don't want to go to school. I want to go visiting with my dad. And I didn't know what to do. I wanted to take her visiting with me. I didn't want to leave her there, and I knew it was going to be the struggle for the next 10 or 12 or 15 years in that journey. But uh, for some of you, it's a, it's a thrilling day. In the last week or so, as your kids return to school, others, it's a huge challenge. Going to college as well. For those of you who sent your child to college, you know you're now in debt for the rest of your life. Others of you have a real difficult time wondering the environment that you're going to be in. And and so these days, these couple of weeks, for a lot of reasons, are really different for a lot of folks. Some of you send your kids off to college, and you know they're going to be strong, mature, and solid bring back a a great guy or a great girl, and you're thrilled with that, and others, you're really afraid for either the environment that they're going to be in or the challenges they're going to face, and have I done enough? Have I prepared them enough? Are they going to be able to stand the pressure? And the list is endless 
And so for a lot of reasons, when it comes to the particular time of the year when we just celebrate Labor Day and think of it as the end of summer, there's a lot of other reasons to be intrigued by this particular weekend. For a lot of people, though, Labor Day weekend is meant to be more than just a bookend of the summer with Memorial Day at one end and Labor Day at the other. And your notes, it's an intention was to recognize and celebrate the contribution of U.S. workers in the nation's economy and society. For a lot of people, though, it's not a celebration of work. It's a celebration because you get the day off of work. Work satisfaction and enjoyment is an interesting concept. A lot of people really do like what they do, find enormous fulfillment in it. Some love their job, some hate their job. Others are just delighted that they have a job. Some can't wait to go to work. Some wish they didn't have to go to work. Some view what they do as a job. Others view what they do as a career. And there are really enormous differences in those two in a lot of ways. Some are going to be at the same place until retirement Others are going to wait for the next best opportunity where economics far outweigh loyalty. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you have had the same job from beginning to end to at least where you are right now, in the same place of employment? How many of you had at least more than three jobs? I mean, not starting high school when you had half a dozen jobs, but you really had more than at least two or three job-related experiences. Wow, more than the first one. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you love your job and ask you to raise your hands, I'm sure many of you would, but your boss may be here, and I don't want to put you in an awkward position in case you don't. I, I enjoy what I do. I, I do. I hope it shows. It is a career, certainly more than a job, filled with more expectations and more challenges than anyone ever told me in college and seminary. It is a career filled with more expectations and challenges than anyone ever, ever told me in college and seminary. Whether it's a church of a hundred or a church of a thousand, 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who enter the ministry leave within the first five years. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month due to failure, burnout, or contention. Dealing with sin, sickness, and sadness for your whole career can certainly take its toll it has on me at times. But having the opportunity to spend your career helping people and pointing them to Jesus who can change their life for now and eternity has absolutely been amazing. Surveys have been taken on job satisfaction and job challenges, and they indicate sadly that many Americans really don't like what they do, especially in the last 20 years, with fewer than half saying they're satisfied. I think I have some stats in your bulletin this morning. The trend of that is strongest among younger workers, those under 25, with less than 39% saying they find satisfaction in their job. Only 20% feel very passionate about what they do. 33%, one-third, believe they've reached a dead end in their career. One of every three believe they've reached a dead end in their career. 21%, one in every five, wish they could change and are eager to change careers in some way or the other. This morning, because it's Labor Day, I'm going to jump ahead. If you listened to Phone Tree yesterday, I shared that with you. We're going to jump ahead in our study of 1 Peter to chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, your Kindle, your iPad, your iPhone, whatever's necessary, take it out, because I want to read along. I want you to read along with me and see the context that I'm taking this from. 
both Peter and Paul address this issue, believe it or not, uh, of like life in a work environment. And this morning I want to look at Peter's advice and see what he has to say. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to go back now next Sunday morning in chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 11 to 25. So that's why it's a long section. I want you to read with me. But I'm going to concentrate specifically this morning on 18 to 23. You there? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you. Always say that. Number one, it's a passionate plea. But secondly, you need to understand the context of who he's writing to as he writes this section of Scripture. As foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, the, glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorance talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, this is where we're going to concentrate this morning. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to the masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but even to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because of their consciousness of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it, but if you... Suffer for doing good and you endure it. That is commendable before God. For this you recall because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For we were all like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, the first thing you notice in this particular section of Scripture, and the first thing we have to do in this context is to address the word slaves. When you study the Word of God, I, I encourage you all the time, when you study the Word of God, you need to do a number of things as you do. Number one, you ought to always know the context of the section of Scripture that we're pulling out from. The other thing you need to always remember is the time frame in which it was written. Scripture transcends time and it stood the test of time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. But although Scripture will stand the test of time, it was given and written within a specific time frame, the first century. And here we are in the 21st century trying to make application. Prime example. You cannot read this section of Scripture that I read a moment ago and hear the word slave without thinking in our context in America of the horrible subject of slavery in the last two centuries. And you cannot use this section of Scripture to defend any form of slavery. It is despicable and ungodly and a black mark on American society. All right, so you can't use a, a word like that that you find in Scripture to defend Anything we've ever done in that particular concept, it is despicable and ungodly and a sad day in American society when it took place on a number of bases. Today, when you think of slavery, we may not think so much of those coming from Africa, but those cotton sex slavery. 
The issue is incredibly repulsive, horribly evil, and sadly pervasive in our world. For many of us, when we hear the word slave, we may go back to a century or two ago. For many of us, when we hear the word slave, we may not even think of what I've just said. But I'm telling you, 300,000 children in the United States are at risk every year for commercial sexual exploitation. 300,000 children. 600 to 800,000 people are brought in, bought and sold across international borders every single year, 50% of that being children, mostly female, subject to that kind of environment. So when you hear the word slaves, I'm not sure exactly what comes to your mind, but I, I do want to remind you when you read Scripture, you've got to be very careful the context in which we pull it. And in this particular thing, you cannot hear that word slave. Hopefully, it's all the technology that we have available to us and forget those who were facing the stats that I just shared with you a moment ago. Great organizations are trying to stop it that I'd love to see involved in, and unfortunately I didn't put them in your sermon notes this morning, Project Rescue, New Hope in Cambodia, International Justice Missions, just to name a few who are involved in that. One of our own, Nadine Shingleton, who runs the uh, what we call the Spaceship Toy Store on Route 8 North, has been heavily involved in that issue over the last number of years, and and I encourage you, I ask your permission, I encourage you to, to jot her a line, but that issue is absolutely horrific in our society, and we don't talk much about it. And when I recognized that word slave this morning, I thought, Lord, I, I feel like it's a, a good platform to at least mention the issue and make people aware of the fact that there are thousands and thousands of young gals today who are caught in a deplorable situation like that, that we as believers cannot ignore. And so I share that with you this morning and call the church office. I'll make sure that somebody has some of those names and some of those places that you can uh, find out some information on. We just can't ignore that issue. When Peter uses the word slave here, he's using a word most commonly used and referred to in the New Testament that we would understand as servant. Usually a person of, of service within a household. Now, there was certainly mistreatment that could occur, but most first century slaves were treated rather well. Many times they were managers, overseers, and trained members of various professions. One commentator said there was extensive Roman legislation regarding the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could eventually at some point expect to purchase their freedom. In earlier Roman history, slaves were acquired through war and kidnapping from foreign lands. But by the first century when this was written, many of them were born into those slave households. Now you've got to remember, Peter is writing to people who are now dislocated and relocated all over the area, and, and many of them are just trying to make a living, and he's trying to help them understand in that environment how to respond to those around you. Even though in, in Scripture there's not a, a good parallel or the best parallel for what we would understand as servant, many will say, and many commentators say, the fact that this was by far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world meant that the applications of Peter's direction or directives to employees is the most appropriate one. Actually, the word employee, some will say, although not necessarily conveying the idea of the absence of freedom, it does basically come as close as possible to an understanding of the kind of people that Peter's referring to, as well as what Paul does in many of his writings here as well. That's the reason that many of us will most often take texts like this or sections of Scripture like this to discuss our attitude in the workplace. The one place that we spend a enormous amount of time in 
and discuss our attitude there, especially when it becomes difficult or we work for an overbearing boss. Now, again, if I were to ask you that this morning, how many of you find yourself in a very difficult environment or working for an overbearing boss? They may be here as well. But many of you know what that's like. And some of you have been in those kinds of situations. One of the things that I believe this text reminds me of and you of as well in those environments that our conduct and our attitude at work should be a direct correlation to the depth of our faith in Christ and not what we think of our boss. I say that again. Our conduct and attitude at work should be a direct correlation of the depth of our faith in Christ and not what we think of our boss. If not, we did do a disservice to the gospel of Jesus. Remember at the beginning of the series when I, when I said that Peter identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ? And, and by using that term, I said it, it's referred to as an ambassador, and he recognized that he was representing Jesus everywhere he goes. The, the place that that can happen most often at representing Christ everywhere we go is in the workplace. A couple of weeks ago, I thought Jack Simmel did a phenomenal job of communicating about what life is like and the transition and changes they've gone to in, in Green Mountains. But all the way through that, Jack kept talking about God strategically placing us where we are, not necessarily only for them as they're in Green Mountains serving God there, but strategically placing all of us in particular environments to be used by God to make a difference where we are. And, and one of the most notable places of of that dispersion is in the workplace. You in this audience will touch hundreds and hundreds of more people than I'll ever will in five lifetimes. You'll represent Jesus better in some cases than I will in a dozen lifetimes because of the fact that God has placed all of us in so many different places and many times uniquely places us in there very specifically to have an impact on those we either work with or for. As followers of Jesus in your notes in the marketplace, we ought to be known as the best workers, the hardest workers, the most pleasant to be around, the easiest to get along with, and the least likely to always be demanding our rights. Does that mean you shouldn't desire advancement, promotions, or raise? Not at all. In your notes, the bigger issue is how we go after those and our attitude when they don't come our way. Doesn't mean you shouldn't desire advancement, promotions, or raises. Not at all. The bigger issue is how we go after those and our attitudes when they don't come our way. In American society, labor unions were absolutely necessary when it came about in light of the despicable treatment of workers and the unsafe and deplorable conditions that many of them had to work in. But in a few cases, the pendulum has swung the other way until, if we're not careful, we demand our way right out of a free enterprise market. At times, many have felt the pressure is overwhelming because they just want a job. But that battle between management and employees, especially for a believer, gets really tense and they don't know what to do. Do not get me wrong. Employers who take unfair advantage of their employees ought to be held accountable for that. Absolutely. But in a world overrun by litigation and the demand for our rights, it can easily get out of balance if we're not careful. And in many cases, believers are, are caught in the middle. They really want to be Christ-like in the workplace. But the pressure on both ends of the spectrum, wherever they find themselves, is sometimes overwhelming. And they don't know how to respond. And 
And every once in a while, we've got to turn to the Word of God. Well, every once in a while. Always, we've got to turn to the Word of God. But every once in a while, the Word of God speaks specifically to a situation that helps us understand how do I respond in the midst of all that pressure on both ends of the spectrum. One commentator said, in the business world, Christians should not be known for their assertiveness as much as for their work ethic, their kindness, their loyalty, their fairness, and their honesty. While we clearly want to improve our station in life and seek wages and raises and promotions, there's no need for those desires to deafen the sound of Christian virtue. It's always hard to apply one section of Scripture to every situation at work, but if not, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves wasting far much too time and energy in defending and demanding our personal rights than following the example of Jesus. And that's where the balance comes in. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves wasting far too much energy in defending and demanding our personal rights than in following the example of Jesus. You want people to recognize and understand your value to the organization. You want people to recognize the job well done. We're all like that. I know I am. I battle with it constantly. But how we go about it should be drastically different from those who know Christ and those who don't. Peter and Paul in Ephesians 6, Peter here and Paul in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 reminds us that our obedience to those in authority over us is not done to gain their approval as much as it is a way to honor God and to be a reflection of him everywhere we go, especially at work. Peter finishes of all things to place this verse, discussing this issue with, with, with verse 23, 19 to 23, and a powerful reminder of the example of Jesus in incredibly difficult circumstances. Look at what he says again. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you review it, receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, that's commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that we should follow and accept. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. If we're real honest, that's not always easy to do. It's an amazing verse. It's been one of those verses that I've gone back to in the last 40 years of my life. But it is an amazing challenge to do that. And obviously, which is why we see all the way over through Scripture, we've got to make me, mold me, shape me, fill me with your spirit so that I can be you in difficult environments. For those of us who have a clear sense of justice and fairness, it doesn't seem right. For those of us who may be like me, who are stuffers, who no matter what goes on, just keep everything down inside, even if unfairly treated, misunderstood, we just stuff it all inside for the moment, but... For real honest, it just absolutely eats us alive. You know the phrase, the truth will always come out, isn't true in this lifetime. It will come out, but not always in this lifetime. And for many people, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. I didn't do anything. I didn't deserve that. They just don't know the truth. People don't get it. They don't understand. This environment is overwhelming, and, and no one believes me. And all of those statements that have been said over and over again in extremely difficult environments, and maybe very rare cases in one or two in an audience's size. 
And you really do want the truth to come out. And you want somebody to vindicate you and set the stage right. And if Jesus doesn't hear, it may be not in this lifetime. Peter again points to the model of Jesus, who at his trial and crucifixion was unfairly treated in deplorable ways, more than anyone could ever imagine. Yet he left the results in the hands of the one he trusted the most, God. Which is why I love that phrase, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I just simply wrote it, he left the results into the hands of the one, one he trusted the most, God. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter's going to mention the issue of mistreatment for doing good in chapters 3 and 4 in five chapters. He mentions this issue three different times, knowing they're going to face some incredibly difficult days ahead and some overwhelming challenges. Many will feel like giving up, giving in, or just going along. But Peter continues to remind them of the ultimate prize of seeing Jesus and knowing deep down inside that when they do, they would have done their best, and they will have done their best in every environment to do their best to please him and him alone. Knowing that they carry his name everywhere they go, especially at times in one of the most difficult places of life, work. Are there times when you need to defend yourself? Yeah, there are. Apostle Paul did it a couple of times in Corinthians. The issue is always how we go about it and always making sure that we seek the mind of Christ as to whether or not we should and then what we should do in response to that. I have no idea what your work environment's like. You probably have no idea what mine is like. But all of us are in very different situations and circumstances. And my challenge this morning is just simply this gives the answer to every circumstance in life and can be the greatest source of strength and direction and guidance you'll ever, ever imagine. I want to close this morning in a very different way. Only because, to be honest with you, I'll pray at the end for you in your work environment. I want to set the stage for what's going to happen in a couple of weeks. Two weeks from now, on September the 16th, you want to encourage every single individual you come in contact with to say you don't want to miss our church on September the 16th. John Stumbo is going to be here. I found out this week I've got a, a ruptured disc in my back. I've got plantar fasciitis in my feet, which is why I can't stand the whole time. My ears are shot from shooting without protection and because I'm old. I'm one of those guys that signed those statements when I had LASIK surgery that it could be one in 100,000 that would go wrong. I'm the one that went wrong. And so my eyes don't adjust right, and I can't see clearly, which is why everybody laughs at my notes because they're in Denny font and uh, so that we can read them. And on and on the list goes. And then I saw John's story, and I want to say to myself, shut up. Because when you see John's story, you'll be blown away. Scripture very clearly tells us, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. But this is a book. It's not a verse that stands alone. It is a book. And the book gives varying examples from one end of the spectrum. Read Jeremiah, read Lamentations, read some of Job, and you'll find out they didn't rejoice in the Lord always. 
They went through really difficult times and had to find their strength in him. Fifteen times in the book of 1 Peter, Peter talks about the issue of suffering. And many in our audience and many that you know have gone through deeper waters than they could have ever, ever imagined. And then some. John's story is absolutely captivating. And of all times, we have him now. Because Ted next Sunday morning is going to take you to verses 6 to 9 in chapter 1. It says, if for but a little while. And some are going to wonder, how long is a little while? Let me share with you three minutes of John's story this morning. And then I'll close. I want to tell you a story. It's a story of faith, a story of my life. It's a story of Christ, our Savior, actually. I was 47. I was as healthy as any 47-year-old that I knew, running marathons and ultra marathons, pastoring a church, loving my family. Took a lot of things for granted, I think, like the ability to eat. <laughs> But it was an October day when I noticed that I had a rash in my body. Blame my wife, thought she must have changed the laundry detergent. Then a day or two later, I noticed that my arms were starting to swell up. What was happening in my arms started to work its way down into my legs. And in just a few days time, I, I went from being able to run 20 miles almost effortlessly to not being able to walk a few blocks or climb the stairs. The doctors started to run tests, and in the weeks that followed, I went downhill rapidly until the point that I needed to be hospitalized. One of my last conscious memories was a doctor standing next to my bed with my chart in his hand, and he said, I've never seen somebody with blood levels so messed up and still be alive. Well, I would slip in and out of consciousness for a few days, and then for five days was completely unconscious. Joanna was brought back in the room numerous times because I might not make it for the next hour or through the night. <laughs> People asked me, did you see heaven? I wish I would have. <laughs> I would have been fun, but I, I think I felt heaven, actually. You know how layers of emotions are experienced deeper than you ever realized were there, like when a tragedy hits or some extremely joyful moment happens in your life and you never remembered ever feeling so happy. Well, that happened for me with the emotion of peace, a peace beyond anything that I could fathom was mine somewhere in that period of unconsciousness. My first waking thought was being in this sea of peace, this ocean of peace. <laughs> and then my eyes gradually opened up and like an aperture of a camera and I realized that people had gathered from all over the country to stand at my bedside and I, I didn't know that I had about died numerous times in those days. In the days that followed, I was conscious for numerous tests that they ran on my body, muscle biopsies, skin biopsies, lumbar biopsy. They sent my blood and body parts all over the United States of America trying to figure out what was wrong with me. When I was finally released from ICU at one of the top research hospitals in the Pacific Northwest, one of their leading doctors looked at me and said, well, you stumped us all. 
I guess we'll have to call it the Stumbo Syndrome because we really don't know what it was that you had. It really hasn't bothered me that they weren't able to diagnose what was going on because this whole journey has been mysterious. Uh, this whole issue, how quickly it arose and what's become of it is, is something beyond just the normal. There's, there's a story of God in here somewhere. As much as I can say, we've been so unbelievably blessed in these last number of years to bring in speakers from all over the world that were absolutely captivating and riveting. Um, we're going away for a few days with our family, and we're coming back early because we do not want to miss John. So please, as, as much as you know how, every, every time you have an opportunity, say to anybody, man, you got to come to our church on the 16th. I guarantee you it will change your life and your perspective on life as we gather together. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace that is absolutely overwhelming. And that we have the opportunity to be givers of that grace every day of our life. Sometimes we need it more than others, and other times we don't even know how to give it because we need so much. And others of us in life can't wait to give it because we have so much. But all of us are at different stages of life. And what I love is that you know all of that. That nothing slips by your knowledge, as we've been saying. And, and you know, when we're in deep waters and when we're on the height of our careers. And so for all of these here this morning who on Tuesday get back to work, many tomorrow, many today. And, and all of those situations and circumstances that will be vastly different from one another. May they find your word saturating their life and their being so that they can hear you and they can serve you and live for you in the midst of every environment in which they find themselves. Lord, I, I'm so delighted that when, when we open these doors and we send our, our people out into that world to know that they're going to touch so many lives, many that we'll never see until glory. Lord, thank you that we have the opportunity to do that and make a difference where we are, an eternal difference for the kingdom. So may that be a part of who we are and what we're known for in the environments in which we find ourselves every day, every week of the year. Bless, protect those that are traveling, a lot of people coming and going in these days together and specifically this weekend. Bless and protect them, we pray for all of our students heading back to school. Please, oh God, in the name of Jesus, protect them. Walk with them, those that are strong. May they lift up those that are weak and make those that are weak find someone who is strong to walk with them. May you be glorified in everything we do. Father, I love you. I thank you that I have the opportunity to love this church family for such a long period of time. Bless them, we pray, as we go from this place. In Jesus' name.